The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. You're loved when you achieve. How many of you listening instinctively shuddered with recognition when you heard me say that sentence? Well, if you were raised in an environment where achievement was important, you may still believe this to be true in your bones, even if intellectually you know you're more than what you accomplish. How do we even learn to become overachievers? And who are we doing it all for, if not for ourselves? Today on the show, we're going to unpack the legacy of achievement, anxiety, and finding out what you really want to do with your life with Julie Lithcott Hames. We're going to talk about how to separate what you've accomplished from who you really are. Trained as a corporate lawyer, Julie started as Dean of Freshman and Undergraduate Advising at Stanford University and did that work for more than a decade. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, How to Raise an Adult, and her TED Talk has been viewed millions of times. She is also the author of Real American, a memoir where she shares her personal battle with the low self-esteem that American racism routinely inflicts on people of color. So, Julie, were, were you raised in a household that prized academic and professional achievement? Boy, was I. Uh, Let me put it this way. My father had helped eradicate smallpox from West Africa. And by the time I was nine was assistant surgeon general of the United States. And uh, all while being an African American male, um, (laughs) meaning uh, he had just soared over the various hurdles and obstacles society had tried to put in his path. And my mother was getting her PhD in science education while I was in high school. So she had been a teacher and then wanted to get her PhD and, but was really a full-time homemaker um, often. And anyway, she was doing classes like thermodynamics and PCHEM. I don't even know what that is. I don't either. Talk about it. And she came home once when I was in high school with her, with her report card, if you will. Again, she's getting her PhD and she says, I've never gotten anything less than an A in my life. (laughs) And (laughs) I was left with the impression that nothing less than an A at all times was required. I'm the youngest of six in a blended family, and I was seemingly the one, um, you know, who was going to be headed toward the Ivy League and so on and so forth. And yeah, um, they loved me without a doubt. And they didn't say I had to be a doctor or an investment banker or anything restrictive like that. But it was really clear that uh, there were high expectations that I would do well to meet. It's so interesting you say that. I I was reflecting as I've I've read your work when you talk about overparenting and parents being much more explicit in their expectations of their children and more present that I, I always say that I was raised in a household with no adult supervision, like my parents were 
I, I was like raised by, you know, myself, basically, but there was such an expectation of excellence. Always, if I did not bring home an A, it wouldn't even occur to me. It was like, this is what you have to do. How, how are those unsaid expectations even set? Is it by your parents' own excellence? Is it in the water? Is it just subtle? I think sometimes it's very explicit and sometimes it's subtle and it's in the water. Um, but even when it's subtle and in the water, I think somehow it wends its way into our psyche and we know that we are loved when we achieve at that level. I think there is some implicit, if not explicit, conditioning of love and acceptance and belonging on uh, us achieving at this level. Um I'm very competitive. <laughs> I feel like I'm in therapy. I'm very competitive. I'm type A. I went to brand name college and brand name law school, became a brand name corporate lawyer, uh, went on to become a dean at a brand name school. Now I'm an author and speaker. So I'm, I'm sort of my own brand finally, which is kind of awesome. But I was being interviewed for somebody's book one day about kind of accepting our imperfections. And, and so she was asking me some questions. And I said, you know what, in my family... Uh, we were all really competitive. I learned young, again, youngest of six. I, I learned I've got to win games in order to matter to my family. <laughs> I've got to win at hearts. I've got to win at spades. I've got to win at poker. Uh, these were the games my family played at the holidays. And um, I just got that message. Again, it was not explicit, but it was pretty clear. Those who won, those who made the great play or you know made the great move or won the game were just lauded in the family. And I wanted you know, be treated that way. So I'm telling this to this author that basically in my family, winning games equaled love. And it plays forward to my present life, where as a 50-something with a partner of over 30 years, he and I compete doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. Now, he doesn't think of it as competing because he's not competitive. But I can promise you, every time I sit down with him, I'm trying to win. <laughs> so I'm having this insight. I say to this author, so in my family, winning was love. And I said, oh, my God, I have to go tell my husband this. So I go find him and I say, honey, I just realized that you know, I need to win. I'm, when I win at the New York Times crossword, I feel loved. And he smiled his beautiful smile more. And he goes, if I just tell you, I love you, should I win? If I just tell you, I love you, is that enough? Aww. And I looked at him and I said, yes. And sure enough, it has been, he beats me probably, <laughs> you know, we don't do it seven days a week, but he, he beats me say four out of, uh, out of five times. And but every single time he wins, he looks up at me, he goes, I love you. And I'm like, thank you. And I keep going. And it's, it's just been this profound insight for me. See, it doesn't you, you you don't have to go back to try to have a happy childhood. Being an adult is amazing. I always say that Being to my an kids. Being is an adult is amazing. amazing. But you know what? I think a lot of young adults have, quote, failed to launch in the millennial generation. I'm saying, quote, because that's not my attitude, but the, the media says that about them. I think to the extent they have failed to launch, it's because we parents have made adulthood look so unattractive. You and I can sit here and say adulthood is amazing. And yet too many of us today spend all of our time, our waking 
you know, moments, just hovering over our children, wearing looks of anxiety and concern, acting like taskmasters and micromanagers because they have to get here and they have to do this and then they have to do this and so on and so forth. You know, I think they look in our faces and just think, my God, being an adult is such drudgery. Why would I ever want to do that? Frankly, I think it's true. And I think it's why they're delaying having kids or putting it off and, you know, sort of not doing it entirely. I, well, how depressing. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Oh, well, and, and you also you, you share a statistic in your uh, yeah, it is a statistic in your book from Ellen Galinsky, who is a mentor of mine about how when she asked kids of working parents what they wanted, they didn't want necessarily more time with their parents. They didn't want their parents to quit their jobs. They wanted their parents to be less stressed about their jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Less stressed about their jobs and less stressed about the act of parenting. So so you became a big deal corporate lawyer. Why? What was what was it about that? I, I take it your dad was a doctor and your mother was a science was. person. So why did you become yes. a lawyer? Well, I think I had to avoid the sciences entirely in order to clear some room for myself in this family, you know? Uh, I mean, uh, and I never loved math or science the way that I loved the social sciences. I'm, yeah, I'm a social justice uh, empath. I believe in the underdog. I root for those who don't have enough and who need advocates. And that's why I fell in love with law as an undergrad. And that's why I went to law school. But I now know with the benefit of hindsight that as a 25-year-old woman of color at an elite law school, I was so damn insecure about what others thought of my intellect and capabilities that even though I went to law school to help humans, i.e. be a public interest lawyer, um, I left law school ready to help trademarks, copyrights, and brands, um, and patents, and and so on. I just chose really badly for myself. I should not have been a corporate lawyer, and and I lasted for four years. I was at a wonderful firm, Cooley Godward, here in Palo Alto, as the internet was being born. Very exciting, sexy time for intellectual property. I'm a litigator. You know, I've got a litigator's personality. I grew up in kind of an argumentative family. That was just natural. But um, the work was not an alignment of my values and my skills. I was good at it. They were kind to me in the grand scheme of corporate law. I mean, I think I had it pretty darn good uh, in terms of how I was treated and the people I worked with. And, you know, they were grooming me for greater things, but it was sucking the life out of me one billable hour at a time because the I wasn't on the planet to protect trademarks. I was on the planet to protect humans. So when did you... When did you realize that? I mean, was it something that you sort of always knew, but you thought you got seduced by corporate law? Like, how does that happen? I didn't realize the insecurities that I alluded to that made me choose badly mm. uh, were not revealed to me until my 40s when I was doing a lot of work with a terrific executive coach at Stanford who was helping me figure out how to be a better colleague. And so I had to unpack all my stuff, if you will. So I didn't know when I was a miserable young corporate lawyer that I had chosen corporate law in the first place to please others. I just thought I was doing what was, you know, like what got me the applause and the approval. It felt good. Like people like, oh, you're a corporate lawyer. How amazing. Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm shopping at Ann Taylor and I have the coach briefcase and I'm, you know, I'm making it. And <laughs> I, I really struggled to align this sort of I'm making it with the inherent internal sense of, I can't believe this is my life. I am not happy. I started to have high blood pressure. I, you know, I went off to, you know, 
my doctor. I'm, I'm probably 26. And um, she's concerned about my blood pressure and asks wow. me to tr get a blood pressure cuff and take my blood pressure five times a day. And then she was very relieved. She's like, okay, you don't have high blood pressure. You have high blood pressure when you're at work. What are you going to do about that? And I was like, ah, ah, <laughs> well, what do you mean? You know, I'm good at this and I'm, you know, um, but that was the first indicator, I have to say. Um, my body was telling me this is not what we want. It always does. The body knows, right? But the but body you, knows. But did you feel sort of mental strain and anxiety at the time or did it feel okay in your head? I definitely felt mental strain and anxiety. As argumentative as I was and in some ways still am, I found the inherent tasks of litigation to be scary. Um, the back and forth, the uh, tit for tat, I relished the opportunity to make an argument, an impassioned argument in front of an impartial judge. Uh, but it, psychologically, it was like arguing for arguing's sake and 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 a lot of form formalism and formality that just seemed to be like, why are we doing this? There's so much paper. Why is, you know, what is the point? Um, I lasted for four years. I was at my firm for three years to the day. And then I went in-house at Intel and I didn't even know what a microprocessor was. And here I am working for Intel and um, where I'm protecting Pentium and bum, 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 bum. <laughs> that was my iconic. job to protect it's that iconic. trademark around the world. Thank you. Thank you. And it's an important trademark. And if you're a trademark lawyer, there are a few brands that are that at the time were bigger than Intel inside and, and Pentium. And yet I just was withering. Like, why am I? Why am I? How did I get so far afield from my own dreams? It's funny. I'm I'm going to interject a little snippet from a, a letter I got from a someone who had read my book, and then I want to pick pick up on on that. And she she wrote to me. I started my first job at a law firm near D.C., and I spend one to two hours every day with my door closed, crying. I've become stuck in the cycle of living a life that looks good to those looking at me from the outside. And now I have loads of student loan debt. And and she went on and it's I mean, it's interesting how many lawyers have written to me over the years saying, help, <laughs> I've gotten into this, you know, because because something about law in, in our culture, probably because we all watch so many law TV shows and procedurals and, and movies, it's very iconic. It's a real stamp of success. We yeah. all understand that, and yet I think a lot of really smart people get stuck along the way. Well, I think when you're really smart, you get a lot of feedback from the world about what you should do with your life. Yeah. And if you're smart and sciencey, they want you to be a doctor or an engineer. If you're smart and servicey, they want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, if you're great at argument and writing and storytelling, they want you to be a lawyer. Um, you know, it's it's and who's they? You know, who's they? Right? They um hmm, yes. Great <laughs> question. Besides your the super they, ego, right? The they who judge us, including our super ego, but also often our extended family. You know, kids today and back in our day, dread that Thanksgiving dinner conversation with grandpa or uncle or aunt so-and-so who's going to ask you what your plans are and going to scold you if your plans don't comport with their sense of what's right and wrong. So, so you quit. You quit law. You quit corporate law. You quit Intel. Did you tell everyone you were quitting? Did you do it quietly? 
Oh, uh, I doubt I was quiet. <laughs> I'm not a very quiet person and really wasn't quiet then. I didn't know how to be quiet. I'm an extrovert and uh, an oversharer and all that. So I, I tried to leave corporate law after a year. It took me it took me three more years to get out. I kept getting rejected from jobs in academia because I had no skills. And, you know, I wanted to work with students and they said, you don't have any skills. And I said, I've, I've been a student. Isn't that enough? And they're all, uh, no, actually, people go to grad school to study the thing you want to do. But ultimately, I got a lucky break, filled in for somebody at Stanford Law School, was going on maternity leave. She was the dean of students. She had been a lawyer. Here I was kind of really following that path. And she made it possible for me to to cover the, the maternity leave. And then her plan was not to come back. I didn't know that. She didn't reveal that to anybody, which was very wise. Mm. Um, and ultimately, when she did make that call, the dean said, you know, I don't, uh, she's not coming back. I, I don't want to do a national search. I want to hire you. I said, I want to work for you, but you're going to have to pay me a lot more money. And that was the empowered litigator, negotiator, lawyer in me who knew this is my one chance, you know, to improve my situation and that of everyone around me. When we are given the job offer, that's when we have the most leverage. And mm -hmm. so that's a tiny little piece I managed to bring over. Um, yeah. And I told people, I told my boss at Intel, I said, I think I might not want to be a corporate lawyer anymore. And I have the chance to test drive a new career for 10 weeks. Any chance you'll sit, you'll hold my job. And she looked me square <laughs> in the eye. Whoa. That tells you how, I mean, I would have quit had she said no. I was, and I was taking a 33% pay cut um, to, to take this temporary job where I would have co, you know, no health insurance, a uh, Cobra from Intel where ironically I had been trying to get pregnant for two and a half years and had failed. And now I take over this job, Cobra health insurance, 10 week job filling in for someone's maternity leave. And what happens? I get pregnant. Of course. And of course I got pregnant. Why? Because the body knows, right? I loved this job after a day and a half. My body was able to conceive because I was not stressed out of my freaking mind. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so my boss said, I, you know, for your sake, I hope you love this. For my sake, you know, I hope you love this other stuff you want to try, Julie. This is my boss at Intel, an amazing woman named Ann Gundelfinger. She said, I, for your sake, I hope you love it. For my sake, I hope you don't. You're one of my strongest people. I'll keep, I'll hold your job. Wow. But you loved it. You stayed. You oh, grew. My job was to care about humans. I got paid to care about law students, having walked their path and the path they intended to walk. My job was to care and to help move obstacles out of their way and to listen well. And uh, it was exhilarating. That's amazing. But but at some point you became worried about them, right? And, oh, and yeah. yes. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because when I when I relooked at your book through the lens of anxiety, anxiety was all I saw everywhere, you know, and um. It, it just seemed to like permeate the book, anxiety of children, anxiety of their parents, anxiety in the ecosystems that raise kids to, to be pushed into this, quote, elite world. Like, it seemed to me that it was just all about the anxiety of trying to get kids to be freshmen at Stanford. Yeah. So caveat number one, this wasn't all my students. Caveat number two, this wasn't 
just a Stanford thing. I was seeing at Stanford a growing number of students who were showing up on our campus the way students were showing up at hundreds of campuses. This wasn't just an elite school phenomenon. This seemed to be something that had changed in childhood. And it was basically this. They were more and more accomplished on paper every year, but they were less and less familiar with their own selves every year, which I knew because I made it my job to know them and know what mattered to them and know who they were so I could help them on their path. And they were, um, so they could point to what they'd achieved. They could show off their thick childhood resume, but I couldn't see the evidence in their eyes that any of that stuff mattered to them. And eyes are where passion really shows and reveals itself. When you're talking about some subject matter, some work, some thing you did that you're passionate about, if you're truly passionate about it, your body, again, this more this is all about the body. It's all about the right? body. The body <laughs> shows it. And so they could smile and say, look what I've done. I'm going to do this. I'm so proud of me. You know? But I was worried, like, hey, kid, is any of this stuff really your passion? Or are you just incredibly good at doing as you're told? And I worried that they were doing as they were told, that they were dogs on a leash, and I was rooting for them to have agency in their own lives to figure out, who am I? What am I good at? Let me find the intersection of go- of those things and go be that person. And over the years, as more and more students showed up with less and less of this agency, because it wasn't just, what do I want to do with my life? It was parents then showing up to you know, wanting to argue with professors about grades and wanting to get involved in roommate disputes and wanting to, uh, you know, always being on top of, you know, when their next test was or what their homework was. It was like they were in fourth grade or kindergarten, but here they were at an elite college. And I kept, I, I almost had that Macaulay Culkin home alone face, like my <laughs> my hands on either side of my face going like, what is happening? Because all I could think was, yo, people, these quote unquote children, as you insist upon, on continuing to call them could be in the Marines right now or working a full-time job. And instead they're here and we're delighted to have them, but you are infantilizing them. And I became worried for the sake of the individual student and for the sake of them generationally, what's to become of America if the next generation doesn't want to hashtag adult. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. What I want to drill down on, and I, and I actually see it from a... I'm in a good mood today, so so I'm seeing it from a joyful place, and maybe maybe this is part of, quote, becoming an adult, is that process of understanding the difference between what you've accomplished and who you are, as you so eloquently put it, but also 
who you want to be and what you want to accomplish, as opposed to what you've always been shoulded into doing. That process is is so beautiful if you can yes. survive it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a process. It's beautiful. It's ugly before it's beautiful. Um, and I think we've all got to go through it. I mean, there is some some bit of a Maslow's hierarchy here. We we are talking about people who inherently have shelter, food, safety, their basic needs are met, and they Indeed. can actually spend more time in, in the sort of higher end of the hierarchy dwelling upon who am I? Why am I here? What do I want? What kind of life do I want to lead? What am I good at? What do I love? And am I going to find the guts to do those things? regardless of what my extended family or entire ethnic community or peer group or society tells me I should. It is definitely the process of forging a self. And I have borne witness to, I want to say thousands, I think it is accurate to say thousands of people. I have borne witness to thousands of people in the act of becoming themselves. And it is such a sight to behold. And it is profoundly beautiful. I 100% agree with you. Can I go back to the anxiety? Because I didn't really address that. Yeah, we like, There's anxiety everywhere. And I think you're 100% right. Um, we parents today have way too much of our sense of self caught up in who our kids are. So it's my ego needs you to know what my kids have accomplished today so that you might think well of me today. It's very you know, the gradations are day by day. It's, you know, how did my kid do on this quiz? How did my kid perform in today's game? As opposed to bigger picture or longer term, my kid is a good person, or my kid works hard and persists and achieves, you know, over time, you know, it's all in the moment. And it's, it's almost like they are our dog in the Westminster dog show. And we are the one that's going to walk home with the trophy for what they've done. I want to hear about, A, the transformations that you helped make when you helped people realize they could be who they were, not just their accomplishments. But also, I think that all of us who get to college, we are intrinsically motivated by something, right? It may not be what we've gotten to college to study, but we are motivated, there is something in us that we love to do and can do amazingly well. What is the process? Like, what have you seen in a common thread when someone is feeling like, I'm capable, I have passion, I have skill, I have talent, I may not be a biochemist after all, I don't actually want to be, but I'm going to be something amazing. Like, what's the first step? So I'm going to disagree with your second premise. Please. Um, that that everyone who makes it to college or uh, or college like the ones we've attended are intrinsically motivated by something. I think many of them are extrinsically motivated by the desire for approval. Mm. Okay, so yes. they are that, absolutely. Pursuing, I'm not doubting right? that. That's not intrinsic. That's no. extrinsic. So what we want is to move them to. Okay, well, what if? no one was judging you. What if you could do what you wanted? What if it was just up to you? And and this is where um, I would be basically rooting for the minor. And here's what I mean. Students would come to my office hours. I would be getting to know them. They would say, oh, well, I'm majoring in econ. And they'd smile in that sheepish way or shrug their shoulders. 
And that was their way of saying, because I have to. Right. Um, or, you know, econ, pre-med, engineering, uh, whatever, you know, the, the three or four acceptable majors. Um, and then they would say, and I'm minoring in film studies. I'm minoring in English literature. I'm minoring in photography. I'm minoring in whatever. And I would beam when I heard about the minor. And I always thought it was my job to elevate the status of the minor because the <laughs> minor was often where the student's actual sense of self um, lay. You know, if I could do anything, I would dot, dot, dot. I had a student who um, said, I've been through the course catalog. Uh, this is actually a slightly different story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I've been through the course catalog. I've crossed out everything that doesn't appeal to me. Unfortunately, that leaves 85% of the majors. <laughs> I'm really having a hard time figuring out what I'm going to major in. And I was like, okay, Jeff, well, that's awesome that you're interested in so many things. Tell me more. Well, I love philosophy for this, that, and the other reason. And he would tell me, and I'm interested in psychology for this reason. Da, 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 da. I love photography, but frankly, the photography department here, I don't think is very strong, he told me. <laughs> and so he's just going on and on and I'm listening and I'm grinning because I'm, I'm listening to a young human who's clearly just aware of who he is and his challenge is how do I choose? How do I narrow? How do I, you know, figure this out? And so, you know, at some point I asked a very cliche question, like, well, what do you, you know, do you have a dream job? When you picture a dream job, do you have any idea what it looks like? And he was like, oh yeah, I want to be a photographer for National Geographic. And I was like, awesome. Okay. Um, so we continued to have conversations over the years and he decided on a major and frankly, I don't know what it was. And it turns out, you know, it really isn't about your major. It's about what skills you've acquired and what topics you can talk about. This guy took his camera, went to photograph glacial melt, basically with time-lapse photography, created a film on glacial melt called Chasing Ice, and he sold that to National Geographic. Wow. That is an example of a kid who was unencumbered by other people's expectations. He knew that uh, photography was a legitimate pursuit when so many of his peers were like, oh, I could never major in that. My parents would disown me, you know? Was he born that way? Did he have amazing parents? Was he independently I wealthy? I don't know. I mean, because I don't think he was independently wealthy. Because because the, the other thing that strikes me as a listener, you know, a lot of our listeners, like I am, often are struggling, and they may be sitting at their desk thinking, "Oh, well, that's great for him. Like he was born knowing he wanted to be a photographer." I don't yeah. know what that special thing is in me. I'm sitting yeah. here. Yeah. I'm at a law firm. I hate it, but yeah. I, I don't have a I don't have a passion. And right. then they might feel even more depressed. And, you know, when I left my law firm, I went around and said goodbye to everybody. And many people said to me, I envy you for knowing what you want. Yeah. Be and this was when I was leaving for Intel. Um, you know, it was hardly what I wanted in the grand scheme of life, but it was definitely going to be better just having one client, Intel, than having dozens of clients being in a firm. So here's how I helped young people think it through. I always thought, it's not for me to give you answers. I can't tell you whether to major in econ or history or, or psychology or mechanical engineering. I have, I don't know the answer to that. Only, you know, nobody knows the answer, but you, there is no right answer is the point, except the one that is derived from your own interrogation of yourself. And so I was trying to help students listen for their inner voice. Uh, which is often it's a voice that shows up in a stomach ache. <laughs> it's a voice that shows up in stress and anxiety. It's that body saying, I am not okay with this. 
And it's on the positive side, it's that voice going, oh, I really love it when, you know, Mm -hmm. I really am excited when I try to get them to tune into that inner voice. and, And I would say, try to discern it from the cacophony in your head of other people's expectations. You are not here to lead someone else's life. And the more you get familiar with your own voice, the more you know what it sounds like, the better you will be able to hear it as it continues to speak to you. And then as you finally hear that voice, the next step, which is probably even harder, is finding the courage to honor what it tells you. Mm. These are all choices. How much money you need to survive on is at a certain level choice, right? We choose the communities we live in. We choose to live in a community where the median rent is this and the median mortgage is this. And this is right. We're making choices constantly. And when our inner voice starts to really beckon and say, you know what, this life will feel good and true if I am doing the following with it, we're able to be braver about, you know what, I can't live here and I've got to move to such and such, you know, because that's the fertile ground for me to plant my dream in. My last question is, what is sort of inner voice training 101? I think a lot of us get really good at turning off that voice. Mm. Well, it's funny, but I'm going to go back to a concept we've named already between us three or four times, which is the body. Mm. The body will tell us how we're doing before the brain can register you know, an analysis of it and a labeling of it. The body tells us. Okay. So if you're trying to discern your inner voice, I'm recommending that you develop a mindfulness practice where you let the clues from your body grow clearer by noticing them. So this is what I did through the help of my amazing coach, Mary Ellen Myers, who really helped me turn things around in my forties. She helped me sort of start to pay attention to when are you feeling an emotion? When are you getting upset? When are you getting really passionate? You know, let's see if you can notice it happening so that then you can decide what you want to do with it, if anything. And I began to notice that when I was, you know, feeling, feeling frustrated, it was my voice got really gravelly. I already have a low voice, but when I'm feeling um, pushed to my corner, you know, or I'm in fight or flight mode, I have a voice that's a whole register deeper and gravelly and um, my mouth gets dry. And I started to be able to notice the feeling of my blood pressure rising. I actually learned that back as a lawyer, um, starting to pay attention to that. But anyway, the body starts to reveal. And if you take an interest in that and this mindfulness practice, you can say like, hey, wow, I'm feeling really stressed right now. I'm feeling afraid. What just happened such that I'm feeling this way? I mean, I'm, I'm talking about negative things, but this also works for positive things. I'm feeling amazing. I'm feeling really joyful. I'm feeling gratitude. What's going on? Oh, it's this. It's because I just did this. Oh, it's because I just had that conversation or I just did this work. Let the body be the little uh, clue giver to you about what you really want, whether it's something you desire or something um, you're afraid of, you know, pay attention to what the body's signaling to you, start to process it analytically, and um, you'll be much more in tune with yourself. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or a review and tell your friends. If you have an idea for a show you'd like to send me feedback, you can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com. You can send me a tweet at Mora AM or send me a message on LinkedIn. Special thanks 
to the team at Harvard Business Review, my incredible producer, Mary Dew, Ann Saini, Colin Howarth, Adam Buchholz. Thanks to our advertisers who keep us on the air. And if you like our music, it's from Signal Sounds NYC. From HBR Presents, this is The Anxious Achiever, and I'm Maura Aaron's Mealy. <laughs>